Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the ASIAL Security Insider podcast. And today we are talking with Chris Delaney about the new secure jobs and better pay legislation. Chris, welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, thanks, John. It's uh, been a while since our last chat and a lot's happened in the industrial relations world, not the least of which is this new legislation. So I guess the best place to start is what is this new legislation and what is the objective of the new secure work and better pay legislation? Well, this this bill that uh, has been passed by both houses of parliament uh, doesn't replace the Fair Work Act. It just changes some parts of the Fair Work Act. So the unions and labour suggest that, and with good reason, that most employees, uh, particularly those on low incomes and in small businesses, haven't really had access to uh, the enterprise bargaining system and therefore have fallen behind in wages and conditions. So some of the changes that come with this legislation or this uh, these minor changes to the Act or um, reduce the barriers to employees and employers entering into bargaining and allow the Fair Work Commission some powers of uh, arbitration which didn't exist before. Okay. So I guess the the $64 million question that anyone listening to this who's running a business would be thinking right now is what are the changes to the key changes employers will face when the new legislation comes in? Yeah, $64 million question. I think uh, I think that's pretty fair. Um, the, the main changes are that there are three streams covering multi-employer bargaining. Now, these come into effect uh, around about the 6th of June 2023. So we've got a little bit of lead time, and we, we're going to need that lead time because we don't know a lot about what's going to happen. We know that two of the uh, three uh, streams supported bargaining agreement and single interest employer agreements will change the workplace bargaining landscape quite considerably, but after June of 2023. And that change will shift bargaining from individual enterprises to multiple enterprises. So So let me me just jump in there for a second, because you said at the beginning of this multi-employer bargaining, what do you mean by that? uh, Well, uh, multi-employer bargaining uh, means that if you've got 20 or more more than 20 employees, you may get involved in one of these streams of bargaining, single interest employer agreements, bargaining, uh, supported bargaining agreements, where either a group of employers by consent uh, get involved in an enterprise agreement that is common to all of them, uh, or where a a union can rope in employers to those agreements, uh, essentially made along sector or uh, industry lines. Now, there are are some... uh, those changes uh, are going to be affected in the area of supported bargaining, as I just said. That was formerly called low-paid bargaining. There'll be single-interest authorisations, uh, cooperative workplace bargaining. Uh, there'll be changes to the making uh, to the boot, uh, the better-off overall test in in bargaining, 
there'll be uh, changes to or what we call termination of zombie enterprise bargaining agreements. Those agreements that were made prior to 2010 uh, and are well beyond their uh, nominal expiry date. So, and the, look, the legislation also covers things like uh, fixed term contracts, flexible work, closing the, the gender pay gap, unpaid parental leave extension requests, prohibition on uh, sexual harassment, and so on. So, there's quite a few things in it, and we won't be able to cover all of that today. No. Okay. So there's probably quite a few people sort of sitting there listening to this thinking, oh, goodness, as if it wasn't complicated enough to begin with. Can you provide some detail on how and which employers will be affected by multi-employer enterprise bargaining? Okay. Well, if we look at those streams, uh, we we had in the, I'll call it the old system, uh, a low-paid bargaining stream. And that allowed unions to make an application to the Fair Work Commission uh, to have the power to uh, bring in a, a group of employers in a particular industry that was that was determined as low-paid and do an enterprise agreement on their behalf. And that was a multi-enterprise agreement. Mm -hmm. Now, there were some very heavy restrictions on that and it didn't happen terribly much. But this supported bargaining system, uh, which is the new stream in this, um, has reduced the administration of that. Unions don't require to have a formal case before the Fair Work Commission uh, to determine whether supported bargaining should take place. The Fair Work Commission will be allowed to assess matters such as the industry-wide pay conditions, whether employers have common interests, and that will make it easier for employees to access that form of bargaining. So exactly what that criteria will be to determine what common interest is, is as yet unclear. But I suspect that that sort of approach Will be uh, uh, will be something that the unions in uh, in the protective services industry side of the security industry will take. Um, there's been an application for low paid several years ago in the ACT with the security industry. That was uh, that was rejected by the Fair Work Commission, actually by yes by the Fair Work Commission, uh, and uh, I think that this will be reinvigorated by the current legislation. So, so, so just again, sorry to interrupt, but what would that mean for the industry if the union was successful in getting up a low-paid uh, agreement? Uh, a, a, uh, a supported agreement, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, it would mean that uh, those employees uh, and those employers could be forced to get involved in an enterprise agreement, a multi-employer enterprise agreement. So you could you could imagine a sector, I'm, I'm trying not to identify any particular sector at this stage, yeah. but you could imagine a sector where uh, there are a dozen or so employers who provide services to particular groups of clients, uh, 
those dozen or so employers, their employees are doing the same sort of work. It's security work, but it's in a, uh, you know, it's in a part of an industry that uh, where everything is similar. Um, that that might be the type of uh, area where that could happen. Okay. Uh, and that then forces those employers into uh, an enterprise bargaining situation that would supersede the current EBAs that they have? Uh, it could. Um, essentially, employers with a, with a current EBA that's uh, within its nominal term uh, will probably be left alone unless there is some kind of sector bargaining going on and then they might be roped in. But exactly how that would occur, we we just don't know yet. Okay. We don't know how the Fair Work Commission will treat that. Right. And is there any reason why companies themselves, like let's say I run a security company and I'm on good terms with four or five other security company owners, is there any reason why I would want to enter into a, a multi-employer enterprise bargaining arrangement? Yeah, look, it, it, for larger employers, um, it might mean that uh, they can then compete on uh, how well they uh, provide a service uh, rather than trying to compete on price. And one of the sad things about the security industry is that very often price is the determining factor uh, for the client. So the cheaper you can go, uh, the better chance you have of getting the work. Now, if everybody that you compete with has to pay the same rate of pay, and we assumed that that was the case under awards, but it, it, it seems to be uh, that that hasn't worked terribly well. But if everybody has to pay the same rate of pay and provide the same conditions under a multi-employer enterprise agreement, then it's uh, it's your reputation your ability to do the job better as the determinant to uh, to get a contract rather than price. Okay, but excuse my ignorance here. Let, let's just say I provide security services where we protect space cows on Mars um, and there's five other big companies that also protect space cows on Mars and between us we represent 80% of the, the cattle protection on another planet. If we all enter into an enterprise bargaining agreement together, how is that different from price fixing? <laughs> oh, I wish you hadn't asked that question. You might need to ask the uh, uh, ASIC or uh, uh, have another look at the Trade Practices Act to work that out. Um, I'm not going to go there. Okay. Understandable. Um, so obviously there's a range of other things in there. You you mentioned before that there were going to be changed to or you know trying to change the zombie EBA agreements. And we know that there have been some issues in the past where companies have bought smaller companies that have desirable EBAs just with a view to keeping those EBAs. How will that change? Well, first of all, a zombie EBA is an EBA that uh, is past its nominal expiry date and was made prior to the Fair Work Act coming in. Remember, the Fair Work Act 2009 was a Labor government act. It replaced work choices, and it was done by Kevin Rudd. Right. Um, so we've got another Labor government now, uh, and they're looking at those EBAs that were made pre-2010, pre the Fair Work Act. Now, 
it will apply to other EBAs that have gone beyond their normal expiry date. But a zombie is a pre-2010 EBA. Okay. They, they, they will go. There's a sunset clause on them. They'll go in, in 12 months unless they're varied or changed in the meantime. And the likelihood is that they will be changed in the meantime. So if you've got a zombie EBA, you, it would be in your absolute best interest to start working right now on doing another single uh, employer enterprise agreement, which you can do, uh, and uh, getting yourself off the list of a multi-employer agreement. It's a very complicated set of laws, and as I said at the beginning, it's going to take a little bit of time for us to understand exactly how it's going to roll out. Yeah, and, and I think that's important to point out to anyone listening to this, like the advice that's being offered at this point in time, because this is also new, please understand that this is kind of, you know, we're building the rocket ship on the platform as we're preparing to launch. So, you know, watch this space for more information and more news as it comes out. Um, now, one of the things you mentioned earlier, and I guess this has sort of been exacerbated by the event of COVID over the last two years, you mentioned flexible work arrangements. What changes will affect employers faced with requests for more flexible work arrangements? Because this seems to be an increasing trend. And, and uh, you know, the work from home uh, issues that arose out of COVID are pretty much um, uh, 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 in the forefront with all of this. So the rules relating to requests for flexible work have changed uh, and the Fair Work Commission will be able to uh, resolve disputes that might surround that. Now, employers will be required to meet with employees, discuss the requests for work arrangements, and they they won't be able to refuse a request before discussing alternative work relate, uh, work, workplace arrangements with the employee. So it requires consultation. Previously, we had 21 days to write back to the employee and say, sorry, buddy, we're not going to do it. So what's changed? Um, we've got family and domestic violence laws in as well, and, and that will be affected here. So... If you're an employer and you get a a request for flexible uh, work arrangements, you'll have to meet with the employee and discuss it. If you intend to refuse it, you're going to have to agree on some alternative changes uh, that uh, that might uh, that might meet the employee's um, uh, request. You'll have to do it in writing. Um, if you intend to refuse the request outright, you'll have to outline your uh, your reasons and they'll have to be reasonable business grounds for the refusal, uh, changes to the working arrangements that would accommodate, for instance, the employee's circumstances uh, and what the employer would be willing to do have got to be taken into consideration. Um, and... The, the employer really needs to do their absolute best to accommodate the employee. Now, that's going to be pretty difficult in industries like the security industry where you've got uh, rotating rosters and uh, client demand, that sort of thing. You know, somebody comes along and says, look, I only want to work Saturdays and Sundays now because I've got to look after the kids during the week. 
you might have to change several other people's rosters to accommodate that. Um, it, you know, whether or not that's a good example, uh, I'm not too sure. It's one off the top of my head. But mm. um, you, you are going to have to consult. I think that's the most important part of that. You'll have to consult with your employee and make sure that you've got reasonable business grounds. Yeah. So I can see situations arising whereby, um, let's say I'm a control room operator and one of my employees says, listen, such and such has changed. Um, you know, we're, we're moving further away from work, but the reality is I could log in remotely and, uh, and monitor the systems from my house now, I might turn around and say, well, that's not realistic because, you know, th- we all know what a grade A control room looks like and what you have to do to get a grade A control room. And that doesn't involve you sitting in your lounge room eating Doritos, watching, you know, Oprah while you're monitoring the alarm system. Is, is that the sort of thing where they would be able to say, look, on reasonable business grounds, we don't think this is viable? Or do you have to try and come up with an alternative? No, look, I think that I think that in that context where – a grade A has to have two people in there and you have the backup and all of that sort of stuff. And you've got to look at the the privacy issues around having, uh, you know, somebody at home with a computer logged into your system and whether or not that could be compromised. Uh, I think in that context, there could be reasonable business grounds. Right. And okay. likely to be reasonable business grounds is probably more more appropriate. Yeah, so it's really up to the employer to figure out which parts of the the business can actually be carried out remotely and which can't. Because let's face it, there's a lot of people who up until now, prior to, prior to COVID, have just been used to running. And this is kind of a public service announcement, guys. So I probably I, I apologize for getting on my high horse, but there have been a lot of people who've been used to running businesses from the office nine to five or whatever it may be that want to go back to that way of working. But the reality is the world's moved on. And if you're going to say to people, no, you can't, you've got to have a damn good reason for it. Is that the correct case? Yep, pretty much. Okay. So one of the other things that you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast was fixed-term contracts. How important are the changes to fixed-term contracts and what do they look like? Okay, Phil. First of all, the changes are not going to come in for about 12 months. So we, we don't have to get overly worried about that straight away. Uh, secondly, I think, you know, we should get it in context. There are not thousands and thousands of employees in the security industry that have fixed-term contracts. That, that sort of stuff seems to happen more in government jobs and, uh, and other, other types of uh, arrangements, lawyers and so on. So... I don't think it's a big deal for us, but a simply what it simply means is that if you've got a contract, a fixed-term contract that goes for more than two years, it isn't a fixed-term contract. It, it, it will become a continuous contract. And while that's enshrined in law now, I think it was always some something like that because if there was no good reason for it to be a fixed term, it would be a continuous contract anyway. Now, if you keep rolling over a contract year after year after year, that's a continuous contract. So I'm I'm not sure that 
Uh, if people have been using them in the security industry like this, and I'm not aware of too many, um, and I talk to a lot of people, uh, if they were using it like that, it would be a bastardization of it, if I can use that term. It wouldn't be... it it wouldn't really be the right thing to do anyway. So I wouldn't get overly worried about fixed-term contracts. Yeah. So is this really just sort of closing down the final part of the loophole where we already had legislation saying, you know, look, if you're getting more than 80% of your income from one employer and there's a reasonable prospect that you're going to continue to get work from that employer on an ongoing basis, you're not really a contractor, you're a full-time employee anyway, this is just going the next step and trying to close out the last part of that or is this something different? No, I think it's something different, but it's it's it, it's trying to close out, uh, if you like, arrangements that uh, try to avoid an unfair dismissal case by saying, well, when I get to that twelve month period, I can cut it off, and he's gone. If I want to get rid of him, and there's there's no there's no uh, um, uh, redundancy pay, there's no unfair dismissal, there's none of that. And of course, that would have been rubbish anyway, quite frankly. So, so they've they've now said, okay, two years, got to have a good reason for the contract. It's got to be supported by government or or some other good reason for it. It's got to be about a project or something that has a finite lifespan. Right. So something like I'm employing you to be a security guard at a military base, which is being decommissioned in 2025, at which point they'll no longer need security. So that's when your contract ends. Yeah. And look, a lot of the contracts that we write for our members uh, have have clauses like that, you know, that this job is for the particular contract. And yep. if the contract ceases, the job ceases. Yeah. But, but they, they're not necessarily fixed term because sometimes – that could be a little bit rubbery. It blows out a little bit or, you know, or yep. this is earlier. Okay. Now, we mentioned earlier that this is sort of early days for a lot of this new legislation and we're still trying to figure out what it means and what it will involve, which brings us to the question, what should employers do? What do they need to do at this point in time? Well, if if nothing else, they should keep themselves informed. And, you know, this is part of it. ASIO will be putting out information all of the time to help people understand what they should do. Um, and, you know, it it is really incumbent on anybody running a business to make sure that they understand the rules and regulations around running their business. So if – I was amazed the other day I spoke to somebody who said, oh, what uh, – what changes? I haven't heard about any changes. And I thought, God, it's been on the news, it's been everywhere, but this guy doesn't really know. So, look, with multi-employer uh, enterprise bargaining, I think your organisation should consider whether you're susceptible to it, uh, whether you could be roped in, and revise any bargaining strategies that you might have or seek advice on on how union leverage might be created by these reforms that are coming through. Yeah. In terms of bargaining generally, um, I think it's important to revisit the bargaining strategy, as I've said earlier, uh, well ahead of your next bargaining round. So if you've got an enterprise bargaining agreement now, start thinking about how you're going to deal with it the next time round. Uh, and look at uh, what you might do if there's industrial action. 
I actually don't think that there will be a lot of industrial action in the security industry. Uh, security guards are low paid. Uh, I shouldn't probably say low paid, but they you know they don't get paid exceptionally well, and they've they've shown over the years to be reluctant to go on strike and lose a day's pay, you know, for a uh, in, in these types of environments. But it might happen. So you should start planning now for that. If you've got a zombie enterprise agreement, um, you you really should consider that um, the extent to which they, your agreement will be impacted by the changes, uh, whether you should terminate that agreement or whether you should go to your workforce and start talking about another enterprise agreement. There may be a possibility to extend them, but I can't see any zombie agreement, say with a flat rate of pay, no penalty rates, those sorts of things. I don't see that getting up in the Fair Work Commission at all. Yeah. Um, look at your sexual harassment uh, policies. That's going to be important after respect, uh, respect at work. Uh, that's a change to the human rights discrimination uh, discrimination and human rights legislation. So consider whether you're equipped to handle that and you'll need a policy and a process to deal with any any claims. The fixed-term contracts we've touched on, flexible work I think we've touched on as well, but you know, have a think about your workplace. What sorts of requests have you had in the past? What, what are you likely to have have you still got a lot of your admin people who want to work from home or you know i mean security guards generally don't have that problem now we haven't touched on the electronic side of the industry in this conversation and that's that might be for another day but you know they have their own issues but most people in the security industry both electronics and guarding are working at the client's workplace yeah they couldn't do their job from home it's not going to happen. Yeah. So they're the sorts of things I think that employers need to think about very carefully. Um, ASIL, uh, I'm, I'm going to do a, uh, a webinar in a couple of days' time, uh, and I might talk about individual parts of this legislation and how it will uh, how it will affect people. We'll put things up on First Alert. We'll put it up on the website. Right now on ASIL's website, there are. Uh, Department of uh, Employment and Workplace Relations um, fact sheets that people can have a look at. Um, they're informative but brief, uh, but they're worth looking at. We've put those up last Friday. Uh, and there are, uh, you know, we, we will be doing other things uh, along the way. So watch this space, but keep watching it. And don't expect some miracle raining pamphlets to tell you what to do, you've got to be active about going out and collecting information. But make sure you're getting it from the right source. Yeah. And uh, I could be jumping the the horse over the card here, but my understanding is ASIL have just released a new app, the ASIL Go app, which is available to all of the ASIL members. And I imagine if that's something that you download either via the, uh, the iTunes app store or the Android store, once you set it all up on your phone, that will be able to give you alerts around new information drops when you're putting things around this out or when you're holding a webinar or whatever. Those apps will be able to actively let members know 
Um, so if you haven't done so already and you're an ASIAL member, make sure you go and download that app because that'll be one of the best ways to keep involved. And I guess lastly, before we sort of let you go, Chris, because we've we've approached our time limit here, but ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening to this, you know, as painful as it may be, if you've been running your business for a while now, the world has changed. A lot of stuff has changed in the last five to 10 years, and you can't think that you're going to keep running your business the same way that you were running it 10 years ago. Sexual harassment laws have changed. Discrimination laws have changed. Workplace laws have changed. The way we work has changed. People don't work from the office as much as they used to. Flexible work arrangements have changed. If you keep trying to run your business like it's 2012, it's just going to be a painful experience for you. Is that how we're seeing things, Chris? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, with any legislation, as I said before, until we've got a couple of cases before the courts or industrial tribunals, we don't know exactly how it's going to roll until we see what some of the unions are going to do. They might start squabbling amongst themselves, unfortunately. Um, then until we until we know those things, uh, we won't know exactly how this is. Yeah. In 2010, we had the Fair Work Act, which replaced work choices, which replaced the work, uh, uh, the, the uh, oh, God, well, it, it replaced something anyway. That's right. <laughs> but, you know, we, we get these things rolling over every now and again, the Workplace Relations Act, yep. uh, 1988. So, and, and every new government federally, every new persuasion of government will make the changes that they want to make if they can make them. This one's got the power to do it. Uh, and we just have to roll with it and make it work for us. Yep. We're not in Canute and we shouldn't be standing on the shore telling the waves to go back. It doesn't work. Roll with it. Yeah, absolutely. And if you are a security business that, and you happen to be a member of ASIL and you're sitting there scratching your head going, oh, this is all very confusing, I'm not sure what's going on, that's what Chris is for. Uh, you know, the ASIL runs a compliance and an industrial relations department. They've got people there that work in, in these areas all day, every day, offering advice. Chris, how do people get in contact with you? Chris at ASIL.com.au. I'm not going to give you my mobile number at this stage, but you can, <laughs> you can get it through ASIL. I, I I spend my whole life on the telephone. In fact, I... Uh, I wear out my my AirPods on a regular basis, uh, at least twice a day. Yeah. Okay. But that's that's important to know because again, people often ask. Well, I, I know this sounds like I'm making an ad for ASIO, but it's just a, a simple fact. People often ask, "What do I get if I join ASIO? What's the benefit of joining ASIO?" Well, this is the benefit: you get access to free advice on all this sort of stuff as part of your membership. So if you are thinking, "Well, I only ever did an enterprise bargaining agreement once ten years ago, and I wouldn't even know where to begin," if you're wondering what the legislation looks like, if you've got questions around any of this stuff. Get in contact with ASIL. That is the point of being a member of ASIL. Chris, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast once again. Uh, it's my pleasure, John. Thank you. And uh, if we don't speak beforehand, have a happy Christmas and a safe new year. Yeah, make sure the elves get your prezzies under the tree and uh, all of that stuff, whatever and it is. Absolutely. And the same. Holiday, holiday season, John. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and uh, the same to everyone listening to this. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, remember there's uh, 
there's dozens more like this in the ASIO podcast range. In fact, I think we'd be getting close to the, the hundred odd now. So you can find those on www.asial.com.au under the news section in podcasts. We cover a whole range of things there. And uh, in 2023, we'll be doing our best to have a regular monthly fireside chat with Chris as we were with Peter around some of the legal stuff. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you once again. And we look forward to speaking to you next time. Thank you.